1: Kath and Ruth, thank you so much for joining us today.
0: We are thrilled to be here. Thank you. It's our pleasure.
1: Yeah, so how about you get us started by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do, and I will pass this first to Kath and then to Ruth, and then we'll flow from there.
0: Sounds great. Uh, again, thanks for having us. Um, my name is Kathleen Weisenberger, and I am a CEO of Peace at Home Parenting, and I am also the mother of two uh, adult boys um they'll always be my boys um and uh i am loving being uh involved with peace at home parenting as the ceo for the last three years and what peace at home is really is a toolbox of uh interactive live training workshops um, proven solutions and compassionate support delivered by just our amazing team of experts uh to help parents navigate kind of the predictable childhood experiences from birth to young adulthood, but most importantly, also those unexpected things, everything from gender and sexuality and special needs to the you know, hot topics that are facing our country uh, these days from school shootings. um, We have classes called Helping Your Child Feel Safe in an Unpredictable World to the kind of political discord, uh, such as uh, handling hot topics with kids and colleagues. And so we know that parents have limited time and energy and they need proven solutions that are going to produce quick results. And so we are really focused on that and um, we are really uh, pleased that our content uh, parents report using it to take action in their family and feeling more confident so whether you're over parenting not sure where to start uh, parents come to us for that clarity and confidence and we work with parents directly but we also work with um, parents through corporations such as um, the Hartford and OMG to uh, educational systems from MIT and Emory down to local school districts, nonprofits uh, and government entities like Big Brothers and Big Sisters of New York and um, Husky Health. And so what all of them have in common is that they understand that helping parents uh, thrive at home. Is critical to their success. And as that is our mission, we are grateful for their partnership and uh, we love bringing people peace at home.
1: That is incredible. And um, as a CEO, I realized I need to work on my little elevator pitch because that was <laughs> that was perfect. <laughs> <laughs> that was really good. Thank that you. was great. Well, thank you for the, the important work that you do. And Ruth, tell us a bit more about you too.
2: My name is Ruth Freeman. I'm a licensed clinical social worker here in Storrs, Connecticut. I've been teaching parenting education for over 30 years. And I'm a bio mom, stepmom, foster mom, and nana to seven extraordinary children who bring me great delight. I was teaching parenting education at, some, at a corporation at Aetna. And um, this very young woman for two years was saying, Parenting is the most popular wellness class we have. You've got to go online. And she tortured me for two years. And I kept saying, no, I have to see people's faces. No, they have to work in small groups. No, no, no. And um, she finally made me do it. My first class was pretty uh, flat, but she and an IT person inspired me. And then we ended up with two and 300 people on waiting lists because they had employees across the country. And there's many, many empty pockets in the United States where there's no parent support. Mm. So um, we took off.
1: This is incredible. You know, most of the parents I know are imperfect. So I feel like a lot of <laughs> parents could use this. <laughs> our
2: motto is progress, not perfection, Kwame. It's hopeless. <laughs> just just interview my daughter. She'll tell you all the imperfect imperfections of my parenting.
0: You're not allowed to talk to our kids. So
2: not-
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love it. No, this is this is great. And listeners, for, for this episode, what we're going to focus on is we're going to focus on authenticity and vulnerability but also bringing that that compassion that positivity to our relationships and to our difficult conversations because i could imagine in your in your field of work there are some tough conversations that happen and so i'd be interested to to hear from both of you about the like the types of tough conversations that you find yourselves in and then we'll talk about how you kind of work through those? What are your your approaches for that? So where is a good place to start with the types of conversations that you all have day to day?
2: Well, we actually both have tough conversations. <laughs> but uh, I, I would say that the, the toughest conversations we're having now uh, actually came from an insurance company that called us up that said they're identifying 500 kids a month of being at risk of um, self-harm. And they wanted us to help with some resources for parents. And they're referring parents to um, practices, mental health practices that focus on suicide reduction. And, you know, right now, some of the experts are saying, you know, the the knee-jerk response to kids talking about self-harm and having suicidal thoughts and suicidal behaviors, which has been soaring even before the pandemic. And then it increased dramatically after the pandemic and during it. The, the knee-jerk response is, put the kid in the hospital, which is sometimes absolutely required, but sometimes it can make things worse. And um, knowing how to respond is, is the, the key. And we were called on to just help parents with their initial response. We refer to experts in that field. But just when a parent discovers that their child might be cutting themselves, for example, That first conversation has to do so many things. You have to, first of all, take the blame off the parent and the shame because that's the first reaction. I've done something wrong. I've caused it. And it's so much more complex than that. So joining with the parent, entering into their worries, listening to their fears, and then moving towards problem solving together. And quite honestly, our biggest message to parents right now is... The importance of being your child's calm center. So many of us measure our parenting based on do our kids do what we want when we want them to? Do they good get good grades in school? Really, <laughs> mental health is much more important than any of those things right now. And it always has been. So talking to parents about what's important without them feeling bad that they didn't know that before they were talking to us. That's one of the biggest challenges. None of us gets a blueprint. So it's just that research is so developed. We can translate it and give it to them in manageable messages, but you have to deliver it in a way that you're joining with the parent and problem solving versus I'm going to fix you because you haven't been a good enough parent, which is a complete illusion.
0: And then so much of what we do is relationship focused, right? So it's based on the parent-child relationship. It's based on the parent relationship with whoever they're co-parenting. And it starts with, you know, our relationship with the parent and, and helping them develop and navigate the tools that are going to have those positive conversations that are going to um, make people feel that they can be vulnerable and honest and not project their concerns on, you know, the other person and really listen and and try to help work together to solve the issues.
1: My... Hand is hurting from all of <laughs> these notes.
0: <laughs> Sorry.
1: <laughs> this is so good. Well, the one of the things that I, I like so much about this approach of of the way that you interact with the parents is that it's it's the listeners of the podcast would identify that is really similar to the compassionate curiosity framework. So with the compassionate curiosity framework, we acknowledge and validate emotions we get curious with compassion and then we use joint problem solving working with the other side collaboratively to to solve the problem using future focused problem solving and so what you said Ruth is you take the blame and shame of the parent you try to take that out of it and then you work through those emotions with them and then you work to move toward problem solving and i think in a lot of these situations of distress what we try to do is we say there is a problem i'm solving it now first And that's it. And it shows that we don't have a full understanding of what the real problem is, because (laughs) if we run to like solve the problem, I'm, uh, listeners, I am aggressively using air quotes as I say, (laughs) solve the problem here. We inadvertently create other problems that are more problematic than the original problem, just exacerbates the issue. So I I really love the, the approach that you're using here. Does your company invest in professional development training? Our calendar is filling up quickly, and we even have some workshops scheduled for next year. If you think you might want one, I'd suggest reaching out soon so you don't miss out. Check out the link in the description to learn more. And we will be right back after this.
0: The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing. New currencies come and go. Decades of savings lost in days. All showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay
2: You know, I want to say what those steps you just, I remember reading this about you, but the compassionate curiosity, acknowledging emotions, future problem solving, those are literally tools that we teach parents. So if you want to help, you know, if you want to help a child regulate their emotions, one of the first things you can do um, is recognize their emotions and um, understand them. And as parents, we think we know our kids. We think we know why they're upset. And that compassionate curiosity is one of the foundations of having an authentic, positive interaction with your kid that leads to problem-solving. Because when they came in the door yesterday and slammed their book bag on the floor, you might have concluded that it was their math teacher again. And maybe it was. But if they slammed their book bag down on the floor today... We really have to clear out our assumptions and go, wow, you seem really, really frustrated. And you take a shot at guessing what the feeling is. And that gives them, it's called an open response. It invites them to say, no, 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 I'm really, really hurt. And, and then you can have a conversation from there. The very first step, which is really hard for parents, is to understand the problem according to the child. The parent always has a theory about why this kid is having a problem with the math teacher. But when you listen with that open, compassionate energy, you may hear another thing underneath this that you didn't realize. And you're also strengthening your child's emotional intelligence because you're giving them an opportunity to explore their emotions and why they're happening. And There's so many positive things happening. So it's a complete parallel process to what you're describing, Kwame.
1: Absolutely. And I, I love that you said we have to understand the problem from the perspective of the child, because in difficult conversations in general, our goal is to understand the problem from their perspective as well, because we understand it from our perspective. OK, we got that. Um, but true empathy is understanding how they see, think and feel about the situation. It doesn't mean we agree. We don't need to agree with what they're saying, um, but we need, do need to empathize and acknowledge that and have them see, feel heard and seen. And what you said was was brilliant. You said, as parents, we think we know what the problem is, but let's zoom out to us as professionals and practitioners as well, because a lot of times we might say, <laughs> I've been here before, I've seen it all before. As, so as practitioners, we may think we know what the problem is. And what we have to recognize is that, again, the goal is compassionate curiosity, but a lot of times we don't get to the, the, the curiosity part right. because we are not humble enough to accept the reality that they might see the situation differently from us. And we have to be able to truly believe like, I might not know everything. So I do need their assistance in order to get me to understand that from their perspective. So I I really love the, 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 the ethos you're bringing into this approach.
2: Often when I do a consultation with a parent, the first thing I do is a quick genogram. I want to understand their relationship with their parents. I want to understand their parents' relationship with their parents. I just want a general trend and, and ethnicity and culture. just a I can do it in seven minutes with somebody. And because once you hear all that, when they start to describe the challenges in the family and you ask, how have you been handling that? You can put their responses in a context. So I just was talking with a dad and he was describing how his father never really realized his potential and he was often depressed and so this father now he's talking about his father um was so disappointed in his son because his son wasn't a perfectionist like he was this father did everything he could to make his dad happy and to accomplish everything his dad never accomplished and he can't understand why his son is not devoting his entire life to making his dad happy so he's very critical of him and negative and now they have this problematic relationship but it's really That father's perception of the father son relationship that's based on his history. So, if I can hear that with a lot of care and get you really loved your dad and you really believed that getting all A's was the way to show him love, and maybe your son loves you in a different way, that's compassionate curiosity. And that's helping dad see himself as good, not as a negative authoritarian, which sort of flashed through my mind also, but isn't really helpful. You know, it's like understanding you know, what's the motivation?
1: Let's dig deeper into that because I think that's really important because in a lot of these difficult conversations, we're going to be confronted with somebody who might be demonstrated behaviors that we find abhorrent for one reason or another. And sometimes it feels as though empathizing with somebody who sees the world so differently and approaches things so differently is almost like, let me use a technical term here, yucky. (laughs) (laughs) Very yucky. (laughs) And so how First of all, why should we take the time to empathize and understand with people whose behaviors might be yucky to it?
2: I'm gonna give you a pragmatic reason. There's a lot of reasons. But you know, if you want peace on earth or peace at home, you have to take in the other person. That's that, but that's not the pragmatic reason. The pragmatic reason is from my point of view, you can ask Kathleen, I'm kind of a zealot, like I'm on a mission. Okay. So when you're a zealot, you know, my I don't know, 30 years ago, I declared that my mission was to eliminate aggression visited upon children in their homes. And behind everything I'm doing is still that 35-year-old mission of, you know, it doesn't help to yell, scream, threaten, criticize, judge, compare. It harms children. Now we know it harms them neurologically and physically, but it harms children. So while I'm a zealot, at the same time, If I can fully understand where that other person is coming from, I can have much more influence to achieve my mission. And that's, in a way, you can look at that as power, which I always think is a bad word, but we can't influence each other or learn from each other if we don't understand where the person's coming from.
0: And that takes time. And I think the other thing, you know, when we put together this hot topics, you know, handling hot topics with your kids and colleagues Specifically, when it came out with the Roe v. Wade decision, it was theories and principles that are applicable to both. And, and I think that that's your point: is that whether you're talking to your kids, often those self-care principles and those self-value principles, where you want to be a calm center, where you want to, you know, be able to be curious and listen, and without understanding that you don't have to change your opinion, but we need positive ways to communicate with each other and to lower our stress levels and you know corporations bring us in to have these conversations with their working families and we have other people who don't have kids who come to these things because all of these principles are applicable to just general conversation relationship and being effective in life
1: agreed yeah and i love that we started with a pragmatic response right because um one of the things i said in In my first book, Finding Confidence in Conflict, I talk about compassionate curiosity, treating people with respect, those type of things. I have a section called, but Kwame, what if I'm evil? (laughs) (laughs) And uh, and it was just pure pragmatism. I'm like, even if you're evil and you don't care, this is why you should still do it because it's more effective.
2: I I just want to say, many parents ask that question because sometimes they just want to, you know, be, be aggressive with their children, I'll say. But, you know, as a therapist... One of the principles is human behavior is always logical, but you just have to be patient enough to find the reasons behind the behavior. And honestly, you know, people come in to my office, they do kind know online coaching, and they're describing things they're doing in their relationships that are mind boggling. And but they know it. They're saying, I can't stop yelling at him. I can't, you know, whatever. But if we look back at their childhoods and we look back, what's triggering them? We're working with um, David Hanscom, an orthopedic surgeon, who's talking a lot about chronic threat physiology that many of us are walking around in this state of just, you know, what we call fight, flight, or freeze. And it doesn't make any sense to say, oh, that parent's going into fight, flight, or freeze when they walk past their kid's bedroom and they're on their phone instead of doing their homework. But the truth is they're having a thought that this kid is going to end up living in my basement. And that thought creates cortisol, adrenaline, all the same stuff as a car coming down 100 miles an hour on the road and you jump out of the way. It's the same stuff biologically. And when that's happening, people don't have access to the thinking parts of their brains very well. So the other things are happening. They're getting angry. They're trying to control the situation. They're panicked. And our relationships are operating like this. And media is feeding that like crazy with with quick messages about that and with big, long stories and dramatizing things. So teaching parents the essential skills of calming their brain and recognizing the impact of their childhoods on their behaviors really puts them at ease. They're like, I'm not an evil person. They feel like an evil person. They go to bed every night and say, I'm not going to yell at that two-year-old. And then tomorrow morning when they're late for work, they're yelling. But when they understand how scared they get, if they're not going to show up on time or what's going to happen for them based on their childhood, then they have compassion for themselves, which is what really matters.
1: Absolutely. This is so well said because, and I like that point that you made about everything being logical if you take the time to understand it. And we're not condoning bad behavior. We're saying we're taking the time to understand the roots of that bad behavior so we can actually address the real problem. Because I mean, anybody can go into any home and say, hey, stop hitting your kid, stop yelling, stop doing those type of things. Anybody can do that. And then the thing is, it's not going to stop. Well, the question is, why isn't it going to stop? And going back to the word that you used before, the power-based approach, most of the time in these everyday human interactions, we don't have the power to compel somebody against their will to do the right thing. So a power-based approach is completely lacking in legitimacy because we don't have the authority to just force people to do the thing. So and it's ineffective. It doesn't 100%, work. 100%, right? Because right. it's kind of like a, a toothpaste, right? So if you squeeze at the toothpaste, it just like moves to another area. So if we just say, decide by force to like shut this behavior down, cool, cool, cool. I'll explode elsewhere, you know? So, right. so exactly. it's so important that we take the time to understand.
2: And 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 Kwame, I want to say something. Um not being able to change people's behavior and understanding that behind behavior there's some logical explanation that is one of the biggest messages we're giving parents right now because parents often perceive misbehavior in children as something to be managed or controlled but in fact you know with the pediatric mental health crisis and and rates of depression anxiety and and self-harm soaring among children and teenagers, teaching parents that when your child is constantly, you know, oppositional, constantly not following directions, constantly fighting you, or not coming to dinner or staying in their room, or those behaviors that you want to manage by taking away their phone are really symptoms. And quite honestly, parents are the missing piece in, in all of our efforts to address the pediatric mental health crisis. I see. I see governments and and nonprofits all creating trainings for therapists, trying to increase the mental health. Um, you know the number of mental health providers. They want schools to do mental health services. They're doing everything. They're pouring, you know, millions of dollars into all kinds of resources, but they're not giving parents. Who Bessel van der Kolk, the father of trauma, says are the most powerful mental health intervention known to humankind is the parent-child relationship. They're not giving parents the tools they need. We're not born recognizing that a kid screaming and yelling might have an unmet need behind it. We just want them to be quiet and, and, you know, we'll do whatever it takes. But parents are hungry for this. And it's very hard to to take the time to do it because we have 66% of working parents experiencing parental burnout. So they're, they're, there's too many demands on them with too little resource inside them. It's a very complex moment in our culture. And I don't know how it's gonna unroll right
1: now. Yeah, and the, the other side of that statistic, Ruth, that uh, people don't talk about enough when you say 66% of parents are experiencing parental burnout, this is the part that other people don't really appreciate. The other 24% are lying. <laughs> <laughs> True. Yeah, it, it is I've a, never
2: met a parent that didn't say that's me. That's me. And I'm like.
1: <laughs> exactly. Who are the these
2: 24%? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Jeez.
2: I'm going to remember that one. Kwame. <laughs>
1: And, and so before we go, I, I want to make sure that we're leaving parents with some tools here. So parents and professionals, because I, I feel like if, if you can start to manage your emotions effectively at home, it becomes a lot easier to do it elsewhere. So what would you say are the, the key tools that parents need in order to, to be there and be that calm center for their kids?
2: Well, it's different for each parent, I want to say. There's no one size fits all. Um, And we have lots of classes on this, Kwame, so people can reach out to us. But um, one thing I want to say is that there's a new book by Mona Delahook called Brain Body Parenting. And that book really talks about the neurobiology of kids. And she points out that kids have different ways of calming down. And as parents, we often use our way of calming down to calm the kid down. So I feel better if somebody talks to me in a soothing voice. But my granddaughter, if, if she goes off to her room, she goes to her room, she slams the door and in like two minutes, she's calm. She needs space. So some parents are kind of trying to move in, get their kid, or take a breath, take a deep breath. And, but really the kid needs space for their brain to calm down. Some kids calm down with action and noise. Some kids calm down with quiet. So for kids, we have to be observers and see and even talk to them. when they're not upset and say, you know, what What helped you calm down before when you were so disappointed that we weren't going out? So we talk to the kids. And for parents, it starts with attunement to your own physical sensations. Many of us are just walking heads. We're not noticing that our chest is tightening up while we're talking to somebody. So it's noticing your physical sensations and having a brain calming practice that you do every day. So it becomes a reflex. For me, that's diaphragmatic breathing. If I'm stressing out in a meeting or something, I'm going to take deep breaths down to my belly. My shoulders will go down. My voice will get quieter. That's mine. And I do it every day. And I'm really good at it. Now it's a reflex. If, if my husband starts to be an idiot, um, I take a deep breath automatically.
1: <laughs> so
2: so I, I think that everybody, you know, we have teachers that specialize in this and they say, and mindfulness practices are great. Um, But we just say, find that practice, do it five minutes a day, become expert at it and call on it. That's the most bare bones, simple answer that I have.
0: We like to uh, remind parents, you know, that old airline adage, put your own oxygen mask on first, (laughs) right? So take care of yourself um, because you're going to be better for your kids, your partner and anybody else you come in contact with. And I think, you know, the whole idea of curiosity and listening There is power in being quiet sometimes. And I think that that's important. And then I think one of the things that we all have to get back to real fast is joy and playfulness. And we all have to be a little wacky and a little fun and just remember what that's like to be like with each other and our children. And uh, and I think we'll all get there together.
1: I love this. Could not agree more, my friends. Well, both of you, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was incredible. If you see, I have just not stopped taking notes throughout this entire thing. <laughs> this, this is great. Before we go, just remind the listeners about how they can get in touch with you and learn more about Peace at Home.
0: Sure, so you can uh, find us on the web at peaceathomeparenting.com and you can always email us at solutions at Peace Home um, and we'd love to hear from you and uh, and connect. So thank you.